gonna be biblical. Biblically ass. Yeah. I have nothing clever to say. I just uh, just roll the tape. Just roll it. The big show. Hi everyone, this is Talking During the Movies, show where two jagoffs talk about new movies and movie news. I'm James. And I'm Mike. And this is episode 11, Dumb and Dumber, When Mike Met James. And this is going to be a fun episode. Yeah, this is going to be a dumb episode. Fucking dumb, dumb, much dumb, dumb episode. Everything we're going to talk about in this episode, with maybe one exception at the end, is pretty dumb. Yeah, yeah, we're going to review Jurassic World, and then at the end of this end of the episode, I'm going to do my forgotten favorite. Mike did Jackie Brown last week, and this week I'm doing a little-known film from 2014, which is something, of course, that's going to be brought up. Um, the One I Love. It's on Netflix right now. If you haven't watched it, I suggest strongly suggest you don't listen to that this part of the episode. Um, but for now, we are going to jump right in to the fucking stupidity that has rolled out over the week and we're going to start with the halloween remake what halloween remake do you ask why do you ask that of course a halloween remake is happening and of course it's fucking stupid i don't i i thought it was a sequel i thought it was a a third installment okay so yeah it's what's happening is it is a sequel but not to the the new halloween films it's it's basically ignoring everything that happened after Halloween 2 ah. and making a yeah, the original Halloween 2 and making a sequel off that. Interesting. Yeah, if you recall, that's exactly what Halloween like what was it H20 did? H2O. It was H2O. H2O. <laughs> H20. I never saw that film, okay? I I didn't either, and I'm not even entirely sure it's supposed to be H2O. I'm not sure why it would be H2O. But that's just how I say it. Um, hey, I'm not the own. biggest. I'm not the biggest Halloween connoisseur. Um, I know that I think the Rob Zombie movies are complete anus. So I'm, you know, I've seen both of those. They are complete anus. Don't ask me why I've seen them. Um, uh, no, I mean I've seen the first one, and it, I, from what I hear of the second, it's pretty much everything that was terrible about the first one stretched out and emphasized. So I'm wasn't really interested to seek it out. So I mean I. Guess I'm happy Rob Zombie's not attached to this project. No, he's not. It, oh, this is fun. A uh, Marcus Dunstan and uh, is directing the script that he co-wrote with Patrick Melton. Uh, now I know these names. I don't think you do. Uh, I absolutely do not. Know. Yeah, I know these names because they teamed up to write the scripts for Saw Four, Five, Six, and Seven. Um. Which oh, were... they got those guys. Yes. Oh. They were the ones who sort of tried to piece back together the rest of the series after anyone who was at all talented from the first three films completely left it creatively. So why do I have do I have any hope that this movie is going to be good at all? Absolutely not. Look, James, how many Halloween movies are there? About 15? 17, something. 17, okay. They've made one good one. They have. They've made exactly the, one good one. The, the first one mm-hmm. from 1978. Yes. So if you want a good Halloween movie, just go 
go rent or stream or buy the original 1978 Halloween by John Carpenter. It's a wonderful movie. You want a good Halloween movie? (laughs) It Follows is coming out on Blu-ray next month. But watch. (laughs) It's basically Halloween 1. Actually, they'd be a great double feature. Yeah. Oh, shit, dude. I found out what what I'm doing in July. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, um, this wasn't the only threequel announced this last week. Um, It was also put forward that we will be getting a third Pitch Perfect movie. You know, I've never been invested in this series, but, you know, how many good third sequels are there? And for Pitch Perfect 3, which is, I mean, for the Pitch Perfect series, which never seemed like a very in-depth and serious movie, I don't know. Okay, it doesn't need to be in-depth and serious, and I really love the first Pitch Perfect movie. I don't have any regrets saying that. Oh, no, I don't think it needs to be, I was just saying. uh, It's, I will say that I, I... I talked about Pitch Perfect 2 briefly on the show, and I think it just barely evaded the uh, the label of, like, milking, like, a, a sequel that milks the original. Because it totally mines, like, the, the things that people attach themselves to in the first film for extra comedy. Uh, I think there was enough innately funny about it and new introduced in it that it just kind of barely squeezed out of that like hangover to territory you know oh, i, I still it, which uh, i mean i enjoyed pitch perfect too i liked it i'd, pr- I'd give it a, a a soft recommendation i i don't think that the third one's gonna <laughs> gonna i mean I, I sense a downward trend in this series i don't think the third one's gonna make it to any kind of acclaim and I think at this point it's pretty obvious they're they're milking it. They're milking this series because Pitch Perfect Two was a huge success. But then again, can anyone really be surprised? No, no. Pitch per- the it Pitch Perfect to... is one of the highest grossing films of this year so far. It, it opened to more than uh, two hundred fifty million. Oh no, no, I'm sorry, no, 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 I'm sorry. It's it's made over two hundred fifty million worldwide to date. Yeah, um, I mean, there's been a lot of box office talk that we're probably going to save for our review, but. Yeah. Pitch Perfect, Pitch Perfect Two is just one of three major blockbuster busters that have hit this year by Universal Studios. They're just fucking rolling in money, so why not make a Pitch Perfect Three from the financial fiscal perspective? Yeah, well done, Universal. We'll get to you later. Oh, we will. <laughs> but for now, we're gonna completely ignore you, and I get okay. The only reason I've heard of this film that we're about to talk about was because if you go on Metacritic right now, you look at the current releases of the movies, and you see Inside Out up at a 94, goes to a movie called The Tribe and The Dope in the 70s and 80s, you see Jurassic World comfortably sitting right below a 60, and then right at the bottom of the top five is a film called United Passions, which is sitting at a 1. Not a 100. James, James, finish your... Oh, I thought I was going to ask you to finish your your number, but I guess you were done. No, yeah, it's a one. Um, oh. Hmm. I mean, as Mike pointed out, it's, it is the second film this year to share yeah. the score of one. It's sitting pretty next to The Human Centipede 3, the it's final in, sequence. It's in good company. And yep. We're talking about this film because I guess the director has completely 
uh, disowned it, even though you really don't get to disown your films. But it's true. But uh, he's called it a disaster and has uh, and has begrudged the fact that his name is all over this mess. Is this the 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 David Fincher Alien Three thing? Is that? Uh, I mean, I guess, but I mean, everyone still knows that it, it, Alien Three will forever be David Fincher's first movie. No, and as much as he doesn't want it to and, be associated with him, it's his movie. Did... Yeah, Vincent Gallo will always be the director of the Brown Bunny, <laughs> and, and uh, this guy will always have directed this shitty FIFA movie. <laughs> FIFA movie, excuse me. Yeah, no, I mean, United Passions. it's so clearly. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't seen it, but it's just so clearly oh. propaganda for an organization that no one likes, especially that no one likes right now. Although they couldn't have had the foresight to know what was going to happen. But still, no one has really liked FIFA for a long time, despite loving soccer, football. Um, I said that so... Why did you say football? <laughs> I said it's so just culturally insensitive. Uh, I was my like, oh, God. They, other people call they, it they football, say, but they, over they here say, we're... They just say football. They don't they say... Fo- I mean, I, I mean, football is Spanish for, for soccer, but... I, I, anyway, I'm, keep, keep going, keep going. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't blame this guy for not wanting to be a part of this film, but why were you ever a part of the film? <laughs> That's... I mean, I'm not going to... I have a pretty strong stance. I'm not going to rant about a movie I haven't seen. That seems ridiculous. I mean, it does. Yeah, no, I've it, not it has seen a one. Movie. It has a one on Metacritic. I, I can assume I'm probably not going to enjoy it. Um, I just... It's so rare that you get a director just so out and out opposed to a movie, especially because this is not a this is not a little film that no one's hearing about and that has no money behind it and no star power. It's this movie stars Tim Roth, Gerard Depardieu, and uh, uh, Sam Neill. Oh, Sam Neill! Like, like from the original Jurassic Park. Like I get... <laughs> this is not a this is not a movie that that is being ignored and yet you have the director just out and out coming and saying, I, I hate that. Like, this is a terrible movie. This is a disaster. And I, I do feel a li- like, I wonder how much FIFA twisted his arm in regards to the content. Oh yeah, probably. I mean, I feel like he was strong armed in making propaganda for them. If, if that is in fact what this movie is, which by all accounts, it sounds like it is. I've heard of directors coming out, like, years later and saying, you know, I really don't like this movie. But it wasn't, like, the a week well, a week into the film's release, or while the film is still in theaters, no less, that he's saying, no, no, I don't want to be a part of this movie anymore. There's this wonderful picture that I'm looking at right now on The Hollywood Reporter, and I think we should post it to our site. Of uh, It's a picture of the director, Gerard Depardieu, and uh, one of the figures portrayed in the film uh, uh oh the president of fight set bladder set bladder yeah yeah um and depardieu and bladder are giving a thumbs up to the camera kind of smiling and the director is standing to the left of them with a incredibly forced smile looking really uncomfortable and keeping his art his hands behind his back <laughs> oh. a perfect metaphor for uh how he feels about this movie yeah mm. and everyone involved in it now, Sam Neill, James, did you know that he was actually the star of the original Jurassic Park in, uh, in, 19, in, in 1993? 
Do you know this? By, directed by Steven Spielberg, yeah. And uh, I'm not sure if you've heard, there's actually a sequel to this movie that, that just came out. Jurassic Park 3? No, no, no. James, one after that. It's called Jurassic World. Oh. And it smashed every single weekend box office record. Fucking in history. Ever. Ever. <laughs> it destroyed the Dark Knight. Oh. It destroyed the Avengers. It, it destroyed it Harry has, Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. That's a, well, that's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> it, it is the best single weekend for any movie ever. James, why don't you lead us into this movie? Oh, okay. So this movie opens up with a shot of a little kid. He's looking at pictures of dinosaurs in his old little, like, picture clicker thing. You know, those little goggles. You click it, it changes the picture. And then he's immediately whisked away to Jurassic World, where he has what can only be described as a shitty, 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 awful time. And to anyone who spent the week leading up to Jurassic World, watching the old Jurassic Park movies to get into the mood, that experience cannot be more parallel to seeing Jurassic World. Wow. Well done. Um, okay. So, uh, <laughs> so podcast podcasts over. Podcast... <laughs> See you next week, everybody. Um, <laughs> okay, so for anybody who's been living under a rock, I, I suppose, or, you know, uh, fossilized in the ground, Jurassic World is the fourth attempt, right? to create a theme park based around the genetic revival of dinosaurs. And this time, they're actually successful. There is an enormous theme park now, called now called Jurassic World. Not just Not a park, Jurassic it's park a anymore. world. Which actually is kind of... I actually do really like that. It, it's sort of similar to what Disneyland does, like Disney does with Disneyland. And then there's Disney World. And that's just this whole whole like ex- like th- this whole extravagant complex that they have uh, but and this time they don't think anything is going to go wrong in fact they're so confident that they have defeated their own hubris that they'd start genetically engineering dinosaurs and not just any dinosaurs these the ultimate killing machines and the dinosaur proceeds to outsmart every single human character in this movie. And honestly, I think he's the hero. <laughs> this movie is so fucking stupid. Jurassic World is so dumb. Everyone in this movie is dumb. The writers of this movie were dumb. And I'm if I sound dumb right now, it's because I had to go fucking see Jurassic World last night. Uh, and uh and yeah, I had fun. It was it was it was fairly fun. But I I had to turn my brain off the whole time to enjoy it. And I I honestly feel stupid now. I feel like I don't have an intelligent conversation within me to have about this movie. I I want to try my best. I'm I'm not going to lie. Like we were, we were very open on the podcast when Mike and I had spilled the beans to each other about how much we loved uh, Mad Max Free Road, and this is one of those movies on the opposite spectrum where w- 
we of course talked about it because there's no mystery here that we do not i did not have any opinions that i didn't that mike couldn't predict about this movie that you know and yeah. that's not that's not a, a testament to my shallow analysis of film it's a testament to how shallow mentally the directors or writers or whoever in Jurassic World was. And might I say about the writers of Jurassic World, do you know this? I, I was just reading about this, that there was actually a a dispute between the directors and I think producer and the two people who are now credited with the script over who should get credit for this script. And I'm sitting here like, who the fuck wants credit? I would be, for I would be avoiding... Any association. I know. I actually, I actually assumed that the lawsuit was about. Oh no! Wait, they wrote it, not me. No, it's yours. Get away from me. I mean, if it didn't make five hundred million dollars in the first weekend, I'm certain that that would be in the discussion. People are fighting over who came up with the Indominus Rex and things like that. Indominus Rex. Um, oh, and there's uh, of course uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's wonderful plea. Not plea, really. More of a proposition to a velociraptor that they're on the same side, mm. holding his arm out to it before. He says we're on the same side. <laughs> you know how it goes. Yeah, these dinosaurs take sides. Their oh. uh, their their allegiance is very easily swayed. Um, <laughs> okay, so my... let's let's talk about the the characters if you can call them that. So Chris Pratt is. <sighs> He's he's trying to be uh, Hiccup from How to Train Your Dragon. It's How to Train Your Raptor. It's it's true, yeah. And he's that's, he's doing a, a damn fine job. But then he's all these also, other people. He, he's also the lone free thinker. No, no, not free thinker is the wrong word. He he's the lone person in touch with nature and his feelings in this cold, sterile corporate park. Oh yeah, all, there's lots of corporate interests and military interests with the Raptors. You got Vincent D'Onofrio saying like we could use the, these the, as a weapon. Vincent D'Onofrio essentially plays a barely less subtle version of the of the army general from Avatar. Barely less subtle. Barely. The, barely. the only reason it, was... it appears more subtle is because Vincent D'Onofrio is a thousand times a better actor than the person who, who played in Avatar. And literally Vincent D'Onofrio's one motivation in this movie, his only motivation, is we must weaponize these dinosaurs. Think about all the wars we could fight with these dinosaurs. By the way, if Jurassic Wars comes out in two years, I'm there. Jurassic Wars. Fuck it. That, fuck it. If there's a movie that's just dinosaur wars, I I mean, it, it's, it, it'd be as stupid as Jurassic World, but without any pretense. Just... The, oh, yeah. The, fucking dinosaurs fighting each other. Go. They're, 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 they're having wars. No. no. Honestly, if Jura so. if the Jurassic series wanted to enter into its like Army of Darkness phase, I I'd be all for it. But this is still trying. This one is this is still trying, which well, in okay. the shallowest sense of the word. No, it's not trying. It doesn't try. You know what it does? It mines I know we're di diverting from the characters a bit and there's a lot more to say. But what Jurassic World does is mine the original Jurassic Park for nostalgia. And honestly, the one the the two parts of this movie that I I responded to, knowing that they were the most manipulative aspects of the film, were the actual the the actual Jurassic World Park itself. Being able to see it and go through it, I know that this was in the trailers. They were 
just depending on the fact that I was a huge fan of Jurassic Park and I just always wanted to see that 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 park functional. I I I bought it. I, I was I was a sucker for it. It was so fucking cool. I loved seeing the actual theme park finally realized and bigger than than even Steven Spielberg ever imagined. That was great. Um and and they fucking know it too because they play the classic John Williams theme. It's not even a re-recording, I don't think. It's just the same exact theme. It's it's definitely not a rearrangement. Just oh, well, over yeah, they, I mean, they play that. They play different versions of it throughout the movie, but in while they, they're showing the park, they do. It's just the exact John Williams. It's the exact John Williams one. It's the whimsical, uh, you know, awestruck, uh, you know, music that John Williams does so well with Steven Spielberg because Spielberg understands spectacle. Spielberg understands craft and and big budget filmmaking done with an attention to detail that shows how good of a filmmaker and how perceptive of a human being he is. I love the original Jurassic Park for every reason that I didn't respond to Jurassic World. I'm not going to say I hated it because it like I I kind of they they did what was requ- the filmmakers did what was required of them by a big budget studio movie. And nothing more. The characters fuck them. Apparently, the 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 filmmakers gave no shit about any of the characters, uh, aside from the ones we already listed. There's a uh, Bryce Dallas Howard as Claire, who uh, I think everyone knew she was going to be an awful character for months now because of that original Jurassic World, uh, clip the original released. extended clip they released. That... Yeah, which which Joss Whedon famously called on Twitter seventies uh, era race, seventies uh, era sexist, and uh, we both called one of the most trite scenes we've seen <laughs> in uh, a while. Yeah, it, it just a weird scene for someone to release as a basically a promotional material for their movie. Why? Why show that? Oh, these characters had a history, and he's the gruff guy who loves nature and she has corporate interests but uh, maybe he could break down her barriers of i, I don't know what barriers by the way, by the way th- th- their entire relationship is is encapsulated in that scene i mean it's a it's the most generic romance spoiler alert it's a romance i didn't know if you'd be what? able to say that uh, um it's the most generic romance it is the generic Hollywood romance. I, I can't... There's nothing distinguishing or special about it. And there's there is also no element of it that you don't also get in that clip. Like, no, that's no, the whole I, thing. The whole dynamic. They kiss eventually, but it, it's it's just based on the same one or two... The same one trait that they both exhibit in that first scene. So, it, You know what I didn't so, realize in the... Or, I didn't realize in this while well, watching the clip the first time... Their entire relationship, the, the, even the details of it, are, are stupid. It's based on one date. They mentioned it. What? They had one date. These are fucking adults who had one date, and I guess they can't get over that and say, <laughs> oh, we didn't have a good date. Let's move on and be re- re- adults. He wore cargo shorts. I mean, who does that? Oh, I just can't get over it. Maybe we should kiss at the end of this movie. By the way, I uh, you know, I hadn't thought too much on, on sexism in that clip or in the movie as a whole. But I recently read an article um, by a, a female film critic who uh, is, whose name I'm, I'm going to look it up right now. I, I'm blanking on her name, but she uh, indicated that this film's arc 
for Bryce Dallas Howard's character, Claire, is teaching a woman who doesn't want to be a mother how wrong she is for not wanting to be a mother and, and having her learn the error of her ways by movie's end. No, that's exactly what her character is. And that's exactly what it is. This is, oh, I, my God. This movie is actually incredibly sexist, and I didn't even think of it as I was watching it. And holy hell. What the a thing is, female I don't, character. I don't know what, this is the type of movie I don't know what standard is oh, is fair to hold it up against. Because of because of how small this film's ambitions were, were. it's it's CG is awful. Its characters are awful. Uh, it, the plot details are inane. Oh, uh, the critic, by the way, was Kelly Lawler for USA Today. Just to just to give credit where credits. Mm. Um, uh, that's the thing. That's, honestly, that's how I feel about this whole movie. Though, is that it's on autopilot. Of of all the movies I've seen recently, this one. It it felt like almost no, like no human hand actually interfered with it. That they just plugged in the Hollywood formula into the plots, uh, the schema of the Jurassic Park world, and just let it go. And that was and and a computer popped out the screenplay. And the computer did the you know shot this cinematography and uh, edited this together in the most efficient way possible. And uh, they they came out with the Jurassic World. Yeah, I mean, I still, as a negative as being, uh, Mike, Mike, you touched on it, I still had fun in this movie. Yeah, I, like, that's the thing. I feel like I, 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 we're coming off like it's a, like, this wouldn't make my list of the worst movies of the year, probably by a damn sight, but I, I mean, I, I did have fun, but it was not well-earned at all. It was through an exploitation of, Gee whiz, that's really fucking cool because I've been, I've dreamed about seeing this park since I saw Jurassic Park as as a kid. And honestly, I had the I had a similar experience early on when they first were showing the Indominus Rex. Uh, I mean, this is one of the things we we're gonna definitely pick it apart for how stupid it is. But at, at least it it sort of had me in an intense moment where Chris Pratt is under a jeep and has to like smother himself in gasoline to hide his scent. Um, from the Indominus Rex so he can get away. It was a really intense moment until you thought about the fact that they just mentioned not five minutes ago that it, it, the Indominus Rex can recognize heat signatures so it would have known exactly where Chris Pratt was regardless of his scent. Yep. There's another moment where uh, uh, Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard looking for uh, her two nephews, Claire's two nephews, uh, come across a gyropod that they, uh, they knew the boys were in. And the gyropod's been smashed to bits. It's completely abandoned. Uh, no- nothing in sight. And uh, they look a bit concerned. Then Claire looks on the ground, sees a cell phone smashed up, and just proceeds to go, No! They're dead. Like She, she decides that's the moment she that gave it away. She decides that's the moment that, uh, that they may be in danger. And she cradles the phone in her hands, and uh, yeah. Oh, and it especially goes on with the with the Raptors, who Chris Pratt trains, and then oh, he eventually agree, he eventually agrees to use them to try to hunt and kill the Indominus Rex. And then once they finally find the Indominus Rex, the uh, they reveal and they notice that realize that the Indominus Rex is actually part Raptor because it's part whatever the plot deems it most convenient to be part. The, the way yeah. this reveal happens is that the raptors approach the genetically modified dinosaur the dinosaur starts not 
not roaring or growling. It just moves its mouth and creates some sounds. Mm-hmm. And the raptors start listening. He is clearly speaking raptor. And then it cuts to Chris Pratt. The camera zooms in on him, and he just goes, oh my god. It's part raptor. And then the raptors turn on him and start chasing everyone. Oh, but right before that, they reveal that they uh, one of the members of the team had a bazooka the entire time and was yes. just staring slack-jawed at the Indominus Rex. Uh, and, you know, when he could have shot him at any time and then tries to shoot him when he runs away and misses because how do you miss with a bazooka? And then, and then one of the um, one of the people in that team who were going to uh, fo- who were following the Raptors chasing down the Indominus Rex and who was now being chased by the Raptors, um, a- goes to the truck that Bryce Dallas Howard is waiting with her two nephews safely in back, opens the back door and yells at them, "You have to get away! They're coming! <laughs> I'm just gonna leave this door open." Yeah. And then the 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 oh. as uh, Mike hinted at the Raptors' loyalty is apparently easily bought because they yeah. they surround uh, Chris Pratt and then Chris Pratt just looks at him and says whoa and then I guess now they're on his side. But you know what I'm going back and thinking about that moment right thinking about it from the Raptors' perspective they mm-hmm. are doing the, this bidding for this human who they believe is their friend. Then yep. they approach this genetically modified dinosaur who's been kept in captivity its whole life. And the dinosaur starts convincing them of something. That the human beings are not to be trusted. That they are not, in fact, their friends. And that they should probably eliminate them. And that's when I realized these dinosaurs, though unspoken, have way more complexity and depth than any of the <laughs> characters in this movie. And once you realize that, I it, it contextualized and made me understand why I honestly was had been rooting for the dinosaurs for the last thirty minutes. Yeah, Shit. if not the whole time they've been on screen, I should. And you know what? That's why I'm saying I kind of had a damn good time. I enjoyed watching. Uh, I enjoyed watching a bunch of flying. I'm not even sure what kind of dinosaur they were. They were flying. They, they, they were flyers, uh, swarming Jurassic World, picking up a bunch of the the bland consumerist uh, population of the park, picking them up and throwing them through windows. Oh, and then can um, we so, not talk about that? That was oh, that was no, honestly and, disgusting for a little well, bit. Can we do? Can we talk about the uh, British? Uh, uh, Essentially, the caretaker that Claire has entrusted to watch her nephews, uh, who is subjected to one of the most simultaneously horrifying and cartoony deaths I've ever. No, that seen. that's exactly what I was. This this movie as a whole, and I'm gonna breach into like intelligent film criticism. It was so jarring tonally on so many occasions because something very serious would happen, like an extended, probably, if I'm not exaggerating, probably a two minute take of that exact uh, person, the British caretaker, being played being played around like a chew toy with between these birds before being eaten by that underwater shark t- dinosaur. Uh, well, shark-eating dinosaur. I, I'm sorry, and, we didn't look up the names of these dinosaurs before we started this podcast. Oh, uh, man. I mean, I don't think they looked up the name of the dinosaurs before they made this movie, so... It, they <laughs> named it the Indominus Rex! 
Yeah, which they do they do mention, but still, right after that scene, they they make a joke, and I'm like, wait a minute, are you gonna have me believe that I didn't just watch a, a woman get picked apart for the last two minutes when you could have just had her get carried away and been done with it? No, you have to show me that these gory, serious details, and then try to laugh it off thirty seconds later to be more appealing to your younger audience. Ugh. I kind of liked her, too. Like, I, I was kind of wondering what her role in the story was, what her motivation was. Turns out she was just the British caretaker, that's all. Yeah, British. I know why I'm calling her a caretaker. She's more like a baby. She's just babysitting She's an assistant kids. babysitter. She's, she's an assistant babysitting these kids. By the way, we haven't even talked about the fucking kids yet. Oh, the oh my kids. God. By the way, so, um, yeah. So, there's... I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but there's two brothers. There's an older brother, about teenage, you know, and a younger brother. And uh, the younger brother is really smart, and he's really into, like, science and books and, and, and learning things. And the older brother is an angsty teenager who just likes looking at girls all day and doesn't mm. care that he's in an amusement park where they've brought dinosaurs back from the from fucking extinction. Oh, yeah, and he... And then there's the the fact that their parents are getting a divorce. And oh, that's right. And it's brought up literally. Entirely through so dialogue. Weird. Entirely through dialogue. Um, placed quite arbitrarily in the movie. There's no buildup to it. They're just, they're having a great time at the park one scene. It cuts to Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard for a while doing whatever stupid thing they're doing that eventually causes the uh, Indominus Rex to escape. And uh, then it cuts back to the kids. And he's cr the little one's crying in a monorail because their parents are probably going to get a divorce. And then the older brother's like, "I'll always be with you, uh, here for you." James, I have a question. What uh, what would have changed about this movie if their parents just weren't getting a divorce? Fucking nothing. <laughs> in fact, if they had just cut that thirty second, forty five second scene out, would it have changed anything? In the no, movie. no, no, it would not have. Like, what, how, how much of a grade school screenwriter do you have to be to think, like, inserting a vaguely tragic past into a character is going to make me connect with them more? Okay, here's how, here's where I'm going to go back to Spielberg. Mm -hmm. And I don't even necessarily think, like, his kids in Jurassic Park were, were good. Um, certainly better than these kids. But yes. they, they, they're not even a testament to how much Steven Spielberg really understood children. Like, look at something like E.T. I, I, I feel like it, it, I'm referencing it because it's just such a strong contrast to how Spielberg makes movies. And part of why I love the original Jurassic Park so much is the care he put into all the little details that, like, kind of made... Like, you could tell that Jurassic Park in that movie would... Like, he got all the little cheesy lame aspects of theme parks just right he understood how theme parks were set up and he he made it feel like this could be real like like this is a thing that maybe could exist in real life if you know we just kind of throw you know if, if we expand our hubris enough to to try to raise these dinosaurs from the dead jurassic world is so content with banal hollywood screenwriting Colin Trevorrow is the filmmaker, right, uh. of Jurassic World. I thought that this may be a good sign because I f fairly thoroughly enjoyed 
Safety Not Guaranteed, which is his only other feature film. Um, and uh, as it, did I, it was it was, as it was good. It was it was good. Um, and I was interested to see what he would. I was interested to see that a big studio was taking a chance on this guy who'd only made one very very small movie. I mean, it had Aubrey Plaza and uh, you know Mark Duplass in it, um, but it was a very small movie, no budget, basically. Um, and you know he did he did some pretty interesting work with those limited means. And this is kind of something that Marvel's been doing too. They've been taking chances on directors who aren't really necessarily associated immediately with big blockbusters, and they've been giving them these enormous projects. And the thing is, they're still expected to make these movies within the confines of a big studio system. Luckily, for the most part, these directors have a pretty strong voice, and I think that they can inject their own personality into these movies. They continue they can continue to be auteurs, even in this big budget atmosphere. No, I mean, if I can make a quick comparison, they, yeah, did the exact, they did the exact same thing with um, Gareth Edwards in Godzilla. His only other film was Monsters, this very tight-knit indie film that is, is popular on Netflix, I guess. Um, very low budget that he made all by himself, and then they bring him into Godzilla, where he still gets to make his Godzilla film. And may, maybe that didn't resonate with everyone in the way, but it's very much a Gareth Edwards film still. And it doesn't feel like the same thing happened uh, with Jurassic World. I, I mean, even think of, like, you know, obviously there's Joss Whedon for The Avengers, there's James Gunn for Guardians of the Galaxy, and even the Russo brothers, who were really well-known for comedies, made Captain America Winter Soldier. Um, and so because of this, and it's generally been successful, so because of this, I thought Jurassic World would be, at the very least, interesting. And aside from bluntly milking nostalgia... Um, I I really found nothing of interest in this movie, and I honestly think that Colin Trevorrow was not really a pronounced enough film. Like he didn't have a pronounced enough voice or style as a filmmaker. He got he, no. He's a sock puppet. I mean, he's a sock puppet to make Jurassic World. Yeah, it, this Jurassic World did not answer the question of who is Colin Trevorrow. I I don't fucking know. I mean, it'll. Yeah, I'm probably going to lose track of him. He's probably going to be off my radar after this. I, uh, Yeah. I mean, I, maybe that's why I'm so disappointed by it, because it was just so ordinary, and I was expecting something at the very least different, or any yeah. chance taken at all. But uh, yeah, there, there was nothing. And you know what? It's paying off big for the movie. I'm... It's it did great this weekend, and I think it. I mean, it seems like everyone's getting exactly what they want. It's got seven point six out of ten on IMDb. Um, wait, that's way too high for my money. Like yes. I said, I, I don't think it was terrible by any stretch. I no, it's just up. such a. It was so but infuriating. It's, it's to wrong. me. Yeah, yeah it, was, it, it was like infuriating in its mediocrity because it's a series that has so much potential. And as you said, fuck, even Jurassic Park 3, which is, everyone agrees is the worst one. I'm not going to say it's better. It certainly had better characters. Like uh, William H. Macy, I love, and I didn't, I didn't hate in Jurassic World 3, like if, Jurassic Park 3. It, it, I feel like more effort was at least put into to Jurassic Park 3 than was Jurassic World. And that's why I was really just upset after leaving the theater. Like I saw it with a friend of mine, we were just like, "Ah, oh, why?" Like, I, you know, 
we've been uh, bashing on the writing a lot for Jurassic World. Um, I do just want to give credit to one of the best, most meta lines in any of the Jurassic Park films. Uh, it was spoken by Jake Johnson's character, Lowry. And I'm only getting that name because I'm looking at IMDb. I, <laughs> I don't really... Uh, he was barely in it. And honestly, I, I don't remember most of these characters' names. They were very forgettable. But uh, it was it was actually in his first scene. He's wearing an, a Jurassic Park shirt. Uh, <laughs> worn, saying he got it off eBay. I love it. Um, and then he, he basically said, you know, what? when did this become about... I'm ter- terribly paraphrasing, but like, when did this become about genetically engineering monsters? I remember... Uh, it's like, why do you need that? I remember when... like It used to just be about the dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not... That wasn't... No, I know the exact scene you're talking that's, about. That's I mean... far away from what the line actually is, but, like, basically the idea is, what is with... Why are you being so huge and extravagant about this? You're missing the point. This isn't what you need. And I'm like, you know what? You're right, Jake Johnson. This isn't what you need. This You do not need an Indominus Rex to make a compelling movie about dinosaurs. What you need is Steven Spielberg's incredible eye for detail and crafting wonderful action sequences and making human characters who, if they're not super complex, they're at least likable and relatable and you can root for them. It's not super complicated. It's not, and it's not larger than life. You know, it's just a simple, a simple craft is all it needs, is all it requires. And this movie had none of that. No, it, it didn't. And yeah, we don't want to, I don't want to go on too long, and especially not on the same note of just frustrating stupidity that was Jurassic World. I wish it was so much better because it could I, have been. I did too. It could have been. I didn't even say the second thing I loved about this movie. The first, as I said, was uh, seeing Jurassic World. Mm-hmm. James, James, how are we? Uh, how are we approaching spoilers with this? Uh, hey guys, uh, listeners, f- five listeners for this episode. Spoilers are about to come. Okay, There's really on. just one spoiler here. And that is that when, at the end of this movie, to get rid, finally, of the Indominus Rex, they unleash the T-Rex. They go Jurassic Park classic. They go Jurassic Park classic, and I fucking lost my shit. I was... Oh, that was so fucking dope. No, honestly, I saw it coming from a mile away. I don't care. Like, no, 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 no. Listen, 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 listen. I saw it coming from a mile away, and I was expecting to just roll my eyes the entire time. But then it actually came out, and so I fighting, and I was like, shit, I'm in for this. Oh, my God. I was uh, I was Ken Watanabe from Godzilla. I'm just like, let them let fight. Let them fight. <laughs> And, and honestly, and honestly, like I, I'm not recommending this movie, but I'm tempted to say that just seeing Jurassic World, the park, like the park itself, and watching a T-Rex and Indominus Rex fight were worth the price of admission alone. Yeah, it, it, I would say it would have <laughs> been, it would have been, if not for how this fight ended, in the most leave, it uh, left the most uh, bitter uh, taste my, in my mouth. So please. the. We find out that one of the raptors is still alive, it's it's blue, and then he starts to turn the tide in favor of the T-Rex, who was getting his shit rocked by the Indominus Rex, actually. Um, and then they push the Indominus Rex up against this, you know, edge of a cliff above the water. 
Now, remember what was in that water, audience, who clearly has a short attention span? Uh, the megalodon shark, you know, dinosaur it, it that jumps orbits, up. It eats great white sharks in a single bite. That's, yeah. that's what it is. And it jumps out of the water at the last moment and uh, eats the Indominus Rex. It, it pulls a uh, it, it pulls a Samuel L. Jackson in Deep Blue. Is it Deep Blue Sea or something? Well, it, it happens to Sam Jackson's character in Deep Blue Sea, where he's just like talking about this, that, and the other thing, and a giant shark comes out of comes out from right behind him and just snatches him up and pulls him in the water for completely unprovoked. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> no. I'm... It's a punchline, and that they ruined what was a cool fight. I don't want to say ruined, because it was a cool fight, but just soured what was a really cool fight on a joke. Was It was almost insulting, but that was just, that would be to say that the rest of the movie wasn't insulting in its own right. It, that would just serve as a reminder that of this movie's stupidity, that in case you were wrapped up in how cool this fight was, nope. remember we're still stupid. That's a very good point. James, I think we're in complete agreement. One thing I do want to mention before we move on. Mm-hmm. Um, did you notice how they filmed the Indominus Rex in this movie? It it was so odd because it was framed usually so that you don't see its face. Yes. Like it was in the background of the frame, but it was very unclear to see. And I couldn't tell if they were trying to go for the Spielberg Jaws principle where not showing the creature is more effective than showing it. Mm-hmm. If that's what they were going, I hope not because they could, that is a complete misunderstanding of that principle. Because <laughs> not showing the shark in Jaws meant not showing the shark in, in Jaws until, of course, the end when you, you see the shark quite a bit and it's worth it because it's been built up so much and you've, you've been scared of it before and now this is just the icing on the cake. Uh, it's not framing it so that it's like not really in frame and out of focus. So yeah, that it's like it's still really there, see. just because you're not looking there. at it. Its presence is quite clear. It's not ominous or pervasive at all. It's it's right fucking there. You're just <laughs> not filming it right. It's not in frame, and you can't see. Like, oh, I saw its face for a frame. Like, that's not that's not how you're supposed to do it. I can't think of what else they were going for, except if their, like, effects budget was too low and they couldn't show uh, well, it Well, I might be much. able to believe that. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Anyway, that was, that, once again, very unremarkable filmmaking here. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's Jurassic World. Neither of us really liked it that much, um, and it's insanely stupid. I'm sure lots of people will have a really good time at it. Um, I, I didn't. It was so generic and effortless and I mean effortless makes it sound graceful. There was no effort put into it. Yeah, exactly. Um Yeah, I don't know. I couldn't uh, it, it was pretty milk toast, but I could not bring myself to find much enjoyment in it. Yeah, I'm gonna fall back on my earlier off the cuff comment that it is infuriating in its mediocrity. There you go. Bad. Uh, and let's move on to a film that I actually like. Uh, yeah. So this week, it's my uh, segment, my forgotten favorite segment and that we introduced last week. But in case you weren't paying attention or didn't listen to us, eh, then uh, what I have to do 
for this film is prove, one, that this is a forgotten film, that uh, people maybe saw it and then it's quickly left their mind, or they just never saw it in general. And two, I have to prove that it should not be forgotten. And I'm sure Mike is going to give me, uh, going to press me hard on these. Uh, I'm excited for it. I've been preparing. But the film is called okay, the, the One I Love. It's currently on Netflix, and it's by a film director named Charlie McDowell, who I think is only famous for his relationship with Rooney Mara, and stars Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss. And as I said earlier, I almost want to say that if you haven't seen this film, you shouldn't listen to this because I highly recommend it and I think you should watch it. And I think listening to this analysis of it will completely spoil anything that it, that it has for you. Like I I didn't tell any, I I told Mike, don't look it up, just watch it. See what you think. I don't know if you necessarily agree with that assessment, Mike, but no, I do. Absolutely. Actually. Um, I got a lot from not knowing what was exactly happening for the first 45 minutes. Really? Honestly, I don't entirely know what happened now by the end of the movie. Um, it was it was interesting to see reveal itself to see it reveal itself organically. So I would agree with that. Um, and you, you're pretty much establishing right now that this is going to be a spoiler filled discussion, right? I don't I don't see any way it can't be. That's how that's what I was thinking too. So yeah, I would say take James' recommendation to heart. I'm 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 sharing that sentiment as well. If you haven't seen it, uh, and intend to, please watch it. Um, and, and then come back before, and listen to us, by all means. Be, yeah, please, but uh, watch it before you listen to this, this discussion, because it's very interesting to see play out organically, and I'm I, I'm still kind of formulating thoughts on it, to be honest. Cool, cool. You saw Which, this, what, like, a couple days ago? Yeah, two days ago. Um, and, uh, I mean, I will say this much. It's pretty much the inverse of my response to Jurassic World. Um, not that it was a solely positive one. I, I really did like it. I, I have... You know, it, it. I don't necessarily hold it up as like a an unseen masterpiece. Uh, I, you know, but it certainly gave me a lot to chew on. But I'm also I'm glad you brought up our two criteria, James, because I'm not necessarily sure I'm convinced of either one for this movie. I'm not really convinced that it's. I mean, certainly it wasn't super talked about last year. I do mm-hmm. remember seeing it around. Um, I'm not necessarily convinced that I think it should be more prominent or that it's been overlooked recently, especially because it's only a year old. Um, oh, yeah, and... so that's a, it's, it's a year and a half old. Let's okay. Say. Oh, oh, I'm six and three quarters. Yeah. Um, so I when, – when you first told me that, when I first said I want to do the one I love, Mike was familiar with the film that it existed, and he said – I don't know if this really counts. It's a year and a half old. And I think it definitely does count, and I have a few good reasons. Um, if we want to look at your just raw numbers here, it made a half a million dollars at the box office. So okay. it, it debuted in like 80-something theaters okay. across James, the United States. James, it made half it, a million at the box office. Yeah. It looked like it cost 80000 to make. Like, it, I'm not, oh, like, I, I mean, I'm, it, it probably more money. Get, I'm not saying it deserves more money, but five a half a million dollars is what a percent of what Jurassic World made. <laughs> That's true, and I guess by saying does it deserve more money, that shouldn't really be dependent on how much was spent on the making of the movie. I I, I do, and you know, you know I'll, I'll give you this: it definitely deserved more of an audience than that. 
Yeah, I mean, it didn't get it didn't get seen very often, despite even having. I think it had like a a brief play on shows like the the uh, the Daily Show with John Stewart. I don't know what I was, why wow. that was it. Yeah, no, I, and so it had play there, but still, like no one really went to see it. And it, even if if the if its age is too much of a factor, I, I have to think like Charlie McDowell. A filmmaker who doesn't have a Wikipedia page, who is only in the news recently because of his relationship, as I said, with Rooney Mara, who is probably, if in my estimate, not going to make another film for at least a very long time. And when when he does, or if he does, and as, if he doesn't, this can't. This is not going to be one of those films that people see as a foreshadowing for a great directorial career. It, people aren't going to look back at this film. They they already aren't because they never saw it in the first place and they never really heard about it as you did, uh, as, you, as you hadn't really heard much about it. And they're never going to. So that, that to me seems like if you, if you want to make the argument that it's not yet forgotten, it has no other destin, destiny but to be forgotten. <laughs> A very fair argument. I'm still... I'll, I'll give it to you. Although I'm, I'm, I, my qualm about it is why are we talking about a movie that we are anticipating to be forgotten as opposed to one that already has been? We have a you you have decades mm-hmm. of of forgotten movies that people haven't seen. I, I get that. I I think it already is forgotten, and I don't. And so to say that. I'm not just saying that it's it's only going to be forgotten because it already is. Like this, this isn't being talked about in, in among the same films that deal with this subject matter. You know, everyone's people are still talking about, still fondly remember a movie like Her. Um, whereas, whereas I would I would say that the one I love has a comparable amount to say about the subject as a movie like Her. And you know, you may not, be, you may see that as hyperbolic, but you did acknowledge that this film gave you a lot, a lot to uh, chew on of that topic, and it, as a, it's not being talked about among those, uh, uh, the great romantic dramedies of 2014, the one I love doesn't come up, and I haven't seen it on top lists, you know, anywhere. Well, but. I am, like I said, I'll give it to you, although I'm still not entirely. I think that maybe other films are more deserving of being highlighted in this spot, but I'll, I'll, I understand your point about it. I'll give it to you on that front. It just seems like this film got pretty good reception and it's been about a year and I don't, I don't know like what more you could have possibly really wanted for this movie. I, I unless like you wanted it to be a big player in the 2014 end of year lists which seems a bit dramatic but i I mean okay um i I don't know yeah i mean i think i think it easily honestly i think it easily could have been at least in talks if more people had sort of remembered it um for those things and i think if it didn't make a top 50 i mean come on uh could it have made top 20 top 10 i mean maybe Maybe probably not top ten. Maybe top twenty if you're if you're really going into it. And this wouldn't have been anywhere near my top ten movies for 2014. Yeah, you know uh, that's why I, I was I'm tempering my my respect for this film. Um, so I, I I get what you're saying. I just don't think it was 
discussed enough to even be given a chance to to be in those lists. Okay. Well, fair enough. Um, all right, I'll I'll concede to you on that front. Why don't we actually get into the movie now? Yeah, yeah, I think that's the second. So point number two is I have to prove that this film. If you're not convinced by the first one, I'm sorry, whatever. Um, but I'm oh, convinced yeah, okay. that the one I love by Charlie McDowell should not be in its forgotten state that it is, or is going to be. <laughs> um, and as I said, this film had so much to say. It's about – I'm going to go right into the plot. So it's about this couple. Um, they're they're mar- Sorry, about a married couple who their – Ted Danson is their marriage counselor, and he says, hey – I, I have this place. It's a it's a private getaway cottage. Go there, take a weekend, let it all out. And I've done this for lots of couples that come back completely rejuvenated. It would be a great exercise. Go do it. So they were went through some some strife and are willing to try anything. So they go. Um, and is it? I don't think it's too soon to get into it. Uh, the the details, do you or? No, go for it. Okay, so they they find in in the cottage there's a there's a guest a guest house. So they find out that in the guest house, if one of them goes in there, then an alternate version of their spouse is in the guest house, waiting for them, talking to them. They're exactly the same. Uh, well, not exactly the same. They have they have very subtle differences. Um, they're doppelgangers, and each of them they they agree on these sort of rules to like okay I can go in the I can go in the guest house and spend time with this with you a doppelganger of you who isn't you under these established rules, and just as a testament but uh, breaking away from plot here as a testament to the as a showcase of acting talent of Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss, uh, it it worked so well because they had. They were playing each of them playing two different characters in the same movie because despite being doppelgangers, the portrayal of subtle differences it, it was to convince me that they're different people was I imagine so challenging and I let me interject here and say mm-hmm. the one aspect of the movie I am unabashedly positive about are the performances by uh, Mark Duplass and especially Elizabeth Moss. Um, they, they were both great. I uh, she stood out even more for me though. Um, they were they were phenomenal. And honestly, you didn't. The reason I maybe put Elizabeth Moss up a little bit higher is that uh, Mark Duplass did have, in terms of distinguishing his two personas, um, he did have a little bit more in terms of like physical. Yeah, traits to distinguish him. Um, Elizabeth Changed Moss his hair took off his glasses. Yeah. Elizabeth Moss, if there were physical changes, they were very subtle. I didn't really notice them. Uh, but when she was speaking, um, and I say this, you know, to avoid the final scene in the movie, mm-hmm. um, it's always clear which persona she is. Yeah, or at so least, that... or at least, is trying to present herself as. Um, yeah, so their and, names are Ethan and Sophie, we should have yes, said. Sorry, um, yes. So we could probably say, like, other Ethan or, or something like that. Or... Well, uh, let, let's call the – I've seen in discussions of the film online, they call the original couple Ethan 1, Sophie 1, and the doppelgangers Ethan 2, Sophie 2. So okay, let's just, that, just stick with that. Perfect, yeah. 
so being able to portray both those characters and actually as different characters, it, it was that that to me was it. It sucked me in. If if that didn't feel real, the rest of the film couldn't feel real. And it doesn't matter what the film had to say about about love or intimacy or connection or commitment. It doesn't. It wouldn't have mattered because I wouldn't have been able to get past the idea that these are just two different. These are just the same character with a little, you know, some different hairstyle. That's true. Um, and because of that, I'm pretty. Like, I, I think, once again, they did the heavy lifting in this film. Just like I, I say once again, because, like, it, it, I, I talked earlier about Safety Not Guaranteed, where I thought the thrust of that film was in the performances. This film was a little mumblecore for me in terms of, like, aesthetic and how the movie was shot and really the locations that were utilized were so minimal. And it pretty much entire even the dialogue was pretty unremarkable. Um, and I mean, un- unremarkable is maybe a little bit too, too harsh. Um, cause it was certainly going for some more, more naturalism and not really, uh, to be as articulate as all that. Um, you know, as someone who's mumbling and stuttering right now, I should probably have more sympathy for that. Um, I, I'm just, I felt like the movie put a little bit too much weight on, the talents of its main actors and it kind of used them a bit mechanically to make its thematic points. Yeah. I mean, you said, talked about the dialogue being unremarkable that I think there are a few standout moments that I thought, I mean, they asked a lot of questions that about, about relationships. The first one that stood out was pretty early on in the film. So the each Ethan one and Ethan Sorry, Ethan one and Sophie one each take very different approaches to this uh, the encountering the doppelganger or their significant other. Uh, Ethan one is very studious about h- how they work. You know what he you know he comes out and basically reports back to her what he found. He's like testing it, t- testing the doppelganger, testing Sophie too to see what limitations she has. Um, and whereas Sophie one taking a very more a much more personal approach. And one of the things she very early on, she goes in, and uh, what had happened between them is that uh, Ethan had had an affair. He had cheated on his wife, uh, Sophie One. And one of the things, she goes into the uh, guest house, and she asks Ethan Two why he cheated on her. I, I, that was really powerful because it, it showed so much just about that she wanted to know that but didn't want to ask Ethan One, didn't want to ask her, her actual husband. She wanted to ask... She did, couldn't anyway, and probably probably wanted to, but couldn't, and saw this as an easier option to get this sort of satisfaction she needed. That was a great scene, and it I love how it was interjected in the movie. There wasn't really a lead into it; it just kind of came, and like she had been waiting to unload this for a long time, and it doesn't really matter that she unloads it to the actual person who wronged her. It's it's about that solace it's about having that 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 conversation that comforting uh that reassurance i guess yeah and ethan Um, too says all the right things in that all the right things and we were going through a tough time but that's no excuse you know i need to be a better person and i will and if there's a like another strength i really want to highlight then is that ambiguity all throughout this movie in terms of what 
characters' motivations are. Because it's... There's a reveal at the end regarding the intentions of the doppelgangers. And to be fair, I'm still not entirely sure how they fucking worked. Are they the old... <laughs> I, I don't really understand the logic of the doppelgangers. That's something... If the film wanted to have a concrete answer on that, it failed. <laughs> Um, oh yeah, no, and I, I agree with that. I don't think it. I don't. I don't think it wanted to. So it sort of just like it. It, yeah, it explained it, enough to get through, but it didn't. It, it didn't really care too much about it. It didn't get hung up on the details. It's uh, very true. As best I can, as best I can figure, they're for some reason being trapped there, and becoming the next people until, if in this forever, perpetuating cycle where you turn yourself into doppelgangers of another couple and then another couple and then another couple. Um, you know, and then once you do so, you can get out and sort of take over their life. And then the couple you left behind has to take over your life, etc. your past life. Uh, it doesn't yeah. make a whole lot of sense to the house and then has to trick another couple. But then what happens if it's just whichever two leave the house first, and it doesn't matter if it's like, the original cup, like they're both a part of the same couple, or like if one of the doppelgangers goes with one of the original people, like it doesn't really seem to matter. Oh, you know, there um, was a very, there's a very subtle line that I did not catch about that the first time I watched it, um, because Ethan two after there's this big fight or whatever, Ethan two says to the the original couple, like, hey, I get you guys are going, uh, you guys are kind of be in a rough patch right now. Uh, do you guys want to take the guest house? And so he was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, God, it's right. No, he was trying to trap them in there and then just leave. <sighs> I, I, I didn't catch it the first time, but I was like, that is brilliant. So, cause it, you said there is this amb- ambiguity about their motivations, but in that it was a very clear motivation. Two, let me, I should clarify that statement because Ethan two's motivations by the end of the film, are completely clear. He just wants to escape. Um, I mean, he did. They did throw in a little bit of nuance when he wanted to escape with Sophie One and not Sophie Two, uh, which true. created some sort of some a rift between the two doppelgangers. But, but uh, does that really ma- I, do, do you really think it mattered to him who he escaped with? <laughs> that isn't that the question of every character in this movie. That's uh, the and and honestly. Did any of them love any of the other people enough to stay behind with them despite everything? And... I, I love that. <laughs> I love that question because uh, I've asked – of course I've asked myself that. Like who do these people care about? Because, you know, honestly, if you look at it on, the fa- on face value, the the doppelgangers presented themselves as idealized versions of, of the significant other. You know, yeah. Elizabeth Moss – the Ethan too appears to her as this sort of suave, no glasses, better hair, that kind of guy who's very emotionally in touch and sensitive. And uh, then, I mean, uh, Sophie too does things as simple as she uh, lets lets him eat bacon, things like that, because she. I, yeah, and she's always she's so passive, which kind of is a reflection on what yeah. I think Mark Duplass wants. She is always. She's I'm non-confrontational. She's non-confrontational. She doesn't really engage him that much. She just makes him mm-hmm. food, and then she's like, eh, I'm going to stay here and read. You, But you go have fun. You have a walk. Like, she's always the pleaser, and uh, uh, Mark 
the op the Ethan two is so much more of an engager. And I love the different reactions to it. Like Elizabeth Moss is. Uh, uh, Sophie One, I should say. I should stop identifying them by the actors yeah. because these actors are playing both characters. Um, uh, Sophie One is completely taken with Ethan Two, and I honestly found that a little like okay, like I kind of saw that coming. Obviously, she's going to start caring more about him than her actual husband, and uh, but Ethan One never really gives in to Sophie too. He's nope. always just super skeptical of her and I, just observing her that. and trying to get a grip of what is actually happening. Well, it's um, not even, it's not even just it that. See, it, it's is, not just, yeah, that's true. That's no, true. I thought, I thought it was. And for a while it was just that like, Oh, he's not really interested in her, but that's only because he, he's more curious about her where, but then later in the film, he confronts his actual wife, Sophie one about it. And he says, like, are you is are you actually into Ethan too? It's like I I get that you know that that Sophie in there is is uh, you know maybe a little bit cooler, but she's not my Sophie. You know I I wouldn't I could never love something that I I know nothing about. I, I right right. You know, I and, want you. And in he, that he sense, comes completely clean. And in that sense, doesn't Ethan really want a more complex relationship then? Because it seems like Sophie just wants someone who's going to not just engage with her, but give her all of the emotional responses and the emotional cues that she wants. And that's what she's content with. Whereas Ethan is not content with getting everything he wants from Sophie too. He, he never really, he's never consumed by it the way that Sophie one is. And he, and he's honestly more concerned with Sophie's relationship, Sophie One's relationship to Ethan Two, than he is with his own relationship to his wife's doppelganger. To the yeah. point where he 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 is ob- obsessed enough to pose as Ethan Two. Yes, he poses as a doppelganger of himself. Uh, to, yeah. uh, I mean, they end up sleeping together, but that wasn't really his sole intention. Even if even it was his intention, he just wanted to spend time with her. He wanted he wanted to so, he knew that. He was sort of losing his wife. He, he, I think he says this. He's losing his wife to a better version of himself. And he knew that, but he wanted to feel what she felt toward that better version. Uh, and so he goes so far as to do it. But it, it, in this whole thing, it, it tells a lot about jealousy. It's a it's a wonderful little spicy theme they play with. Um, there's, there's a scene where Sophie 1 is probing Sophie 2 to find out what she knows. Basically, and she's trying to mask it by saying, "Oh, what do you do? You talk with, uh, with Ethan and all. You're Ethan." And she says, "Sophie too says something like, are you concerned with uh, what I talk about? Oh, are you concerned with what I do with uh, your Ethan, or what you know about what I know about what you do with my Ethan?" Yeah, <laughs> great line, great question. Yeah, and... no, and she she was clearly like she was very uncomfortable. She wanted to know that. You know, she wanted to know if this person saw her as like a a homewrecker, kind of, which is weird to say because he's right. I mean, at that point, you imagine you think that they're just purely clones of themselves, doppelgangers. So, not realizing that they are their own, they were their own people beforehand. So, I don't know how much the twist sort of sullies everything. I don't think it does because there's still a lot to chew in there. A lot. I've seen that a lot of people discussing this couldn't get over the whole reveal of what they really are. 
It didn't bother um, me too much. I mean, it, it, it definitely, I wanted to know what they fucking were, but I thought of all the other films that I'm content with not having a concrete answer, and I couldn't really think of a good reason why I needed one in this movie. Um, it's still really fucking weird, but okay. Like, once I get over that, it's not... It, yeah, yeah, you're right. You don't really need a great explanation. It doesn't make sense in real world logic. Real no, world logic. No, there's no way to make uh, sense well, of this. Well, no, like, like even assuming that this was possible, it the logics, yeah, the logistics no, the... do not make any sense. Okay, whatever. I'll I'll treat this as a premise in which to explore the nature of attraction and relationships yeah it's, it's which high does concept. which does feel mechanical to me and you know how i feel about high concepts so mm-hmm. i do kind of hold that as a slight against the movie a bit but uh, honestly even talking about some of the motivations of the characters in this movie i i the last third in particular this movie took off completely it reveals so it was, much about it reveals so it becomes such a great character piece toward the end and that's where I really did feel why you love this movie. And I could really get behind that at that point. Yeah, because the first like two thirds really relied on a lot of intrigue, a lot of mystery. And there was a little bit of the interesting relationship stuff. But I feel like that was just so perfectly crafted to yank you into this crazy head spinning world of uh, all, all those things you were talking about. Trust, jealousy, uh idealization and questions that you would never want to ask yourself honestly and almost almost no like none of the almost none of the trap of speechifying or or articulating ideas and themes like if they are there's only like one big speech in this movie and honestly i loved it which one was that again that was that was when uh uh ethan won sort of cons Ethan two with the help of Sophie. sorry, cons That's Ethan. Right. Yes. Yeah, he cons Sophie one with the help of Sophie two to sort of get her in a room and, and plead his case basically. Yeah. And I, I loved it because he sort of like takes himself to task about everything rather than just say, Oh, I, I love you. We could be great. He says, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a mess. I'm not perfect. And I it was shitty to you. And, th- and he doesn't say it with nearly the, finesse that Ethan two, you know, the, the tug of string and then he'll say what you want to say. Ethan, the two. manipulation. Yeah. He doesn't say it with nearly that sort of finesse or, or manipulation, but he says it and it was raw. That's probably what I, that's probably what I liked about it most. It wasn't written at all. I would be surprised if I honestly, I would be surprised if that was scripted entirely um, because it felt so real. That's kind of how I, I thought about several stretches. I mean, really the whole, the whole film, it's like I said, it's very mumblecore. I I honestly think of it as mumblecore Tarkovsky, and <laughs> like, which is an interesting combo that took me a while to get sold on. But a testament to the performances, they're always very they're so naturalistic. The dialogue doesn't really feel written, and at times that's underwhelming. But honestly, at big climactic moments, I agree with you. It's pretty refreshing, and it's even more so because depending on how you interpret the ending that speech may or may not have done anything. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like, is there, are, there multiple interpreta- are there multiple interpretations for the ending? It seems pretty clear-cut for me. No, it, no, yeah, there are definitely multiple interpretations for the ending, and there should oh. be. Okay, okay, so what are we talking about here? The details of who went with whom? Yes. Okay, because it seemed pretty clear to me 
that Sophie right, too. So what happens in the end? By the way, I okay. think we should. Why don't you explain it? Because yeah, I mean, I'm I'm uh, hoping at this point that you've already watched it. But if you haven't, what happens is they find out that only two only two can leave the uh the whole cottage at 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 the end of the day, and then the other two are stuck there. Um, until the next person comes along, of course, the next couple. Um, so they're all they're all trying to get away, and it ends in this climactic moment where uh, Ethan two, for whatever reason, I, I still haven't figured it out, can't can't leave by himself. Uh, so he hits this invisible barrier and falls to the ground, and then everyone else runs up to him, and then the two Sophies are wearing the same outfits because they they were trying to trick Ethan two before, and they successfully did so. Um, so the two, they're both looking down at, at Ethan two and Ethan one looks up at the two of them and event and eventually grabs one and says, we got to get out of here. Um, it seemed pretty clear cut to me that Sophie one actually chose to stay with Ethan two and Sophie two chose to be the pleaser for basically the rest of her life because it meant that she could get out of there. And, and, you know, be whether or not she actually felt anything for Ethan 1, I don't think she did. Um, it seemed clear to me, but I guess you, you've probably been reading more discussion about this recently than I have. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to be... Oh, and then, and then later, <laughs> sorry, it, it, it ends on a scene where... Yes, uh, that's yeah, the it, important it, part. Ends, ends on a scene where uh, Ethan and Sophie, they're, they're just in bed afterwards, after this all is sort of blown over you could say and you know chatting talking and stuff like that and then they uh sophie goes to make him breakfast and he says so what are we having and then she says i was thinking eggs and bacon and earlier in the movie it was revealed when she made him bacon that sophie hated when he ate bacon so he, he has this moment of of wondering is this my sophie is this sophie too and then sort of having to decide whether or not he cares about that Right. So I don't I get why you think that he left with Sophie too and that's the definitive answer. I think the film obviously will lead you to that. Like that's kind of what it's probably wanting your immediate gut reaction to be. But that's far from being definitive and okay. I think it's important to realize that whether which person he left with, which version of Sophie he left with influences what the ultimate implication of the entire film is. Oh, a hundred percent. And the ambiguity of that is so wonderful. I thought that that was a great note to end the movie on. The more I thought about it, the more ambiguity there really is in it. So basically I'm, I'm embarrassed because I, I'm referencing the FAQ for this movie on IMDb, <laughs> which okay. has which has a long discussion about the ending, um, mm. but which I agree with and which I think is fuel for thought on it. It says one central question permeating the film is whether we truly love a person or if we love the idea of that person and which Sophie is mourning Ethan to has gigantic implications. Ethan to being dead at this point in the movie. <laughs> Yeah, or at least knocked out. Probably it looks like he's dead. Um, oh, I, I thought he was just unconscious. So, or maybe he's just like I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so there's two scenarios: one in which Ethan one has left with his original wife, 
this is probably no this is a more optimistic ending obviously he was honest before he loved the person she loved she found herself loving him again uh she and in the experience caused her to sort of not only forgive ethan but even make him a food that she dislikes yeah you know actually i thinking about that now that could, instead of being seen as a smoking gun of the top wobbling if you will um yeah. it it could be seen as her growing in a relationship and hoping that he obviously will return the favor exactly um, it's it's meeting you know empathizing with the other person a bit more and not ju- not uh, you know making steps toward creating a connection again mm-hmm. it's completely possible that she has moved closer to that state that to that point in her relationship with Ethan. And that's a pretty hopeful ending for the film. Of course, there's the second scenario, which is the first one that came to your mind. And I'm going to be honest, it's the first one that came to my mind. I just assumed, Oh my God, he left with the wrong Sophie. Um, and that's of course that of course he left with a doppelganger. He couldn't, the idea of Sophie ended up being ultimately more important to him than the actual original Sophie. She yeah. wanted to stay behind and mourn. Sophie one wanted to stay behind and mourn Ethan two with whom she connected. And they are basically going to live out their relationship. With a lie. A lie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like it's, and, 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 and basically aborted their earlier relationship. Um, yeah, no, it was it was te- kind of a if that's the ending too, it, it you know Ethan one's speech about his well line I guess about how no one can re- no one can replace my Sophie you know I I love my Sophie is call, call it calls it in a question and then I'm not that, gonna lie I'm not gonna lie I I called that scene the question immediately when he said it oh well at the I, very least it was dubious like. Are you just saying that because you like? Are you really convinced? He said it, like he he didn't sound entirely convinced of it. He sounded like that was what he should say. For to... for me, it seemed like he was embodying that idea through throughout his whole actions. Um, that he wasn't trying to pursue Sophie too at all, um, and that even when he had like an unguarded moment with her, all he could talk about was how that he he hated that he was losing his Sophie. Uh, to the new Sophie, so uh, it seemed genuine to me. I, I understand there's also a big ambiguity in that, as there is in a lot of the points in this movie. Yeah. Um, but for me, it all sort of came like tumbling down at him at the end because of the interpretation I take when he realizes, or at least strongly suspects, that this isn't his Sophie. But the thing, but his immediate action is to sort of think about it and then say, "Okay, I'll be right there." Okay. He doesn't like tear the shit down and say like you're not my sophie right blah 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 he he's resigns himself to to this idealized version to this non-confrontational sophie rather than the sophie that he earlier in the film said and acted like he wanted um i honestly also (laughs) i almost wish that there was even less even more ambiguity in the ending because he one way or another he has a very distinct reaction when Sophie tells him that he's making him bacon. He he looks really confused. Basically how I'm feeling as an audience member, like, oh, what? 
what did she just say? Oh my god, I may have picked the wrong woman. Like, he's clearly surprised. And I would have, I think it would be interesting if there was also that lingering doubt, like, maybe he deliberately took Sophie too. Maybe he didn't really care to bring his, like, maybe he chose Sophie too. Yeah. I but mean, that, I feel like the ambiguity is not really there because not of really reaction. not because of the reaction. The only the only thing you could you could take from that is if is if he at least thought he he entertained the possibility that he was taking Sophie two and was okay with it, but then was sort of confronted with the reality that this is in fact Sophie two, and that sort of changed things for him. Sure. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and also, I mean, even if he did, there's the fact that Sophie won. There's there's never a who, which one do I shoot moment. There's never a you know, yeah. There's never protestations like I'm the real Sophie. No, I am. Like they're very resigned, and that's that's so fascinating. And depending on which character is resigning to which fate, tells a lot about that character. And I'm kind of enjoying just unpacking the different possibilities. So I adored the ending of this movie. I have to say. Um, it's it's great craft, honestly. It, it was very well done. And I love that degree of ambiguity. That was actually the part I couldn't wait to talk about. And that actually made me want to see the movie again. Despite the fact that I wasn't as engaged for the you know the the earlier parts of the movie i almost wonder if they would have a different tone i would be looking for different things now that i saw that ending so i i I, I actually so honestly i might be i might have read like i might be had the scenario where i was like reading too much into it now that watching it the second time because like at the end another thing that this is confirmation bias 100 percent. i can't i can't deny it um at, at the end when ethan says when Ethan realized when she says I'm making eggs and bacon, he's looking around the room and he, what he does, he looks at the bed and the bed has all been messed up, you know, because, uh, they had a conversation about how she stole all the covers from him the night before. And I was wondering if that's something that he was realizing had never happened between them before, because why would they be talking about it at this stage in their marriage? Just now they're learning that, Oh, she sometimes steals the, steals the covers. Like she was sort of lost in that. And then he looks around and is like, wait, that doesn't add up. Wait, this doesn't add up. And then he quickly has to make a decision, do I care about this? Yeah. Again, confirmation bias, 100%. But that's just something <laughs> I saw. <laughs> like, I had this theory and I was looking for things that proved me right. <laughs> there you go. Um, honestly, conversations like this are why I, I wish it had more play, especially in, in conversations with movies like Her that ask these not similar questions, but questions on this very similar topic and do so with, I think, I think a lot of gusto and a lot of, a lot of, uh, class intact, if you will, a lot of craft. Oh man. I, uh, wow. I, I mean, I adore her, um, (laughs) more than this, but yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think maybe I was being a little bit too hard on the movie earlier. Just, I mean, reservations aside, it's nice to have this degree of open interpretation in a film and to actually want to watch the movie. Like, I'm eager to watch it again to, I mean, even if not necessarily to catch details I missed the first time, just see how characters come off with the information that I have from the ending. 
So I guess I'll, I mean, hell, maybe even in the course of this conversation, I've lightened up to the movie even a little bit more. Um, What's the point of these segments? Uh. I, yeah, no, I mean, I do think it's a really good movie. I, and certainly one of the more interesting, uh, one of the more, more interesting explorations of relationships that I've seen recently um, and of course, I love movies that explore relationships in creative ways. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, also yeah. my favorite movies. Um, and like I said, it's it's not quite that level for me, but it's definitely very well crafted, especially for the mag- like the magnitude of movie it was, which is not. I mean, this was not a big impacting film by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so, you know, you have convinced me uh, that there was more this film had to offer that people haven't really necessarily fully appreciated. I'm sure the people who've seen it do. Um, but yeah, I and you know, you're right. If there were a list of top 50 films of 2014, from what I've seen, this deserves to at least be in the conversation in the in the uh, somewhere on that list. I'm, I'm taking I'm taking that and running with it. It's the most like lukewarm. Like, <laughs> I mean, I know that your overall reception isn't lukewarm, but in no, terms no, of no. It's, my it's my context, it's a... no. My reception is most certainly positive. I yeah, but I... it's a lukewarm description of its context. But I'm taking it. Damn it. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Uh, All right. Yeah. Well, uh, see good... this movie. It's on Netflix. It's really easy. And uh, yeah, yeah. I'm hoping that you've enjoyed this discussion, having already seen it, but. Uh, because I didn't want to spoil, didn't want to ruin it for you, which we most certainly have if you haven't seen it. Sure. But watch it again. As <laughs> I mean, I might watch it I, again. I, I I do want to watch it again. Um, huh. which is which is great. <laughs> like I, I'm I'm happy that it provoked that much intrigue and that much interpretation and critical thinking. That uh, you know, I feel like I would get something more out of it seeing it again. So. Yeah, I am you know, good, good pick, and I'm sorry I was so. No, no, no. I, I was I was a bit too critic, like a bit too dissenting on it at first. Um, some some reservations I still hold with, but I, ultimately this is a really fun movie to discuss. Yeah, no, and and I I completely understand having reservations with point number one of whether or not this is forgotten or being it's so new and things like that. Um. But I don't see I don't see any reservations in number two. Like if this is a, if this isn't forgotten or if this is forgotten, it most certainly shouldn't be. It has a lot to say on the topic in movies of its same genre or movies that handle its same same themes. Um, so I really love it, and I'm glad we got to talk about it. Uh, what are we gonna do next week? Inside Out. We're so yeah, next Inside next out. week next week's gonna be Inside Out. And uh, James, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking probably next week's gonna be a short segment. Um, yeah, a short podcast. I, I will be in Arizona. Um, I yep. will be podcasting with my headphones microphone instead of the very nice, uh, microphones that you bought for us. Um, uh, in, so in, in fairness, Mike purchased our awesome website. So we're, we're on even keel here. And, uh, so yeah, I think next time we're going to keep it short. We're just going to do inside out, but I'm really looking forward to seeing that movie. We were going to try and get, into preview showings so that we could be cool and uh review do, it before it actually came out to the general public this show yeah um yeah. unfortunately the timing and the pricing 
didn't really work out so well. So, yeah, it was playing yesterday <sighs> at a few select theaters, both in our towns. But tickets were twenty five dollars. Yeah, and and the <laughs> we don't get paid for this. <laughs> we don't get paid for this podcast, and and they technically were the the, the showing started at seven. I I was not off of work by seven, so I would have had to rush over to the theater and probably have missed at least some degree of, uh, of the film at the beginning, which I hate yeah. doing. So we're just gonna have to be normal schmoes and uh, and review it next week, like uh, after everyone else has seen it too. So whatever, that's uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, the early hype has me excited. I hope. I hope. It... Yeah, I know. I'm excited 100% by hype. I know this is going to do nothing to to eat at Jurassic World's box office, so I'm not worried about it selling out. That's for sure. No, oh, certainly not. In fact, they're speculating this may be the first Pixar movie that doesn't debut at number one. Oh, the box office. How, um, how tragic for them. <laughs> oh, we have well, one I... film that doesn't debut at number one. <laughs> Uh, well, they're smoking the $20 bills from the gross from Cars 2 still. <laughs> God. Fucking Cars 2. Okay, we gotta, we gotta wrap it up. Alright, it was a great show this week. Great movie this week. One of them. And oh, it's that's... gonna be yeah. a good show next week. <laughs> you about which movie that is. Uh, not Jurassic World. <laughs> Jurassic World. And as always, thank you for listening.